You are listening to the podcast of the Gallery Church. Our desire is to display the goodness of God's grace and love to New York City. For more information about our church, please visit us on the web at gallerychurch.com. Feel free to go ahead and grab your Bibles or devices and follow along with our scripture this morning. I'm reading from the ESV, and our passage today comes from Luke 11, 1 through 13. That's Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? For if he asks for an egg, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Gallery Church. It is so good to see you all on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, My name is Stan Thomas, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the gallery. And I'm excited that you are journeying with us as we take a look at Luke 11, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Very specifically, we've been in a series taking a look at God's heart for us to seek his face in prayer. Um, For those of you that were At our workshop this past Wednesday, we'll be having another one this Wednesday, uh, led by Pastor Jason James again. Uh, Last week, we looked at the posture of prayer. Uh, And this Wednesday, we're going to be looking at specific tools of prayer. Uh, What are different ways for us to engage in with God in prayer uh, for 2022? So I want to encourage you, if you have not signed up, Do sign up for this week. You might have missed the first half, but uh, it's still worth uh, engaging and connecting and being part of that. If you have your Bibles, love for you to turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And let's see how far I can get in through our text this morning. Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 to 13. We're going to jump around very familiar portion. It starts off with Jesus saying, 
with the disciples asking Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, if you were not here last week, I'm going to plead with you uh, that you do take a listen to last week's sermon. And for those of you that are watching online and you were not present online, that you would take the time to listen to last week's sermon. Uh, It's 30 minutes, but it kind of gives you a little back context uh, to the request the disciples make with Jesus, teach us to pray. Because that request of teach us to pray did not come in a vacuum. It came after they saw Jesus himself praying. And that's how verse 1 begins. Now, when Jesus was praying in a certain place, and all through the ministry of Jesus, this is what we find. We find the one that we worship constantly depending on his Father. Constantly praying, praying before miracles, praying after miracles, praying in the middle of miracles. We see Jesus seeking the face of his father when things are going great, when he's facing great distress, seeking the face of his father. Jesus prays. He prays. And last week, if you remember, we saw how it was important for us to combat a broken, a, a broken view of the person of Jesus how it is important for us to see the humanity of Jesus Christ in the ministry of Jesus. How Christians wrongly swung the pendulum when there was an assault on the deity of Jesus during the Enlightenment period. The Christians swung the pendulum and tried to assert only the deity of Jesus, denuding denuding him of his humanity. And because of that, we look at the life and ministry of Jesus and we say, of course, he can do what he can do because he's God. And yet, all through the ministry of Jesus, this is what we see, that it's not his deity that we see front and center, but it is his complete humanity. That Jesus Christ doesn't perform miracles because he's God, because there are plenty of people all through scripture that perform miracles and plenty that perform after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we see that the miracles of Christ happen when he announces post-baptism, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Holy Spirit has invaded me. I am now yielding to my Father, empowered by his Spirit. And that's why when we look at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus goes on and he concludes the text that we read for us. How much more will your Father give you the Holy Spirit for those who ask? You see, that's the heart of Jesus. Do not live this Christian life apart from being dependent on the Father in prayer and yielding to the power of his spirit that he so freely wants to give you. If you desire to be like me, yield to the Father and the Spirit. And so in teaching the disciples what that looks like, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. Now, I want you to hear me, the Lord's Prayer, we touched on a little bit of last week. This is a creed. Every rabbi at this time, when their disciples would ask, give us your statement of faith, would announce a creed. And so Jesus, in praying the Lord's Prayer, is giving us his statement of faith. That before he announces what you should pray, he says, this is what I believe. This is what I know to be true. 
This is what I stake my life on. And what is it, Jesus? The Lord's Prayer. And so last week, we started the journey, and we couldn't get further into it, and so hopefully we'll get through the text this morning. It started with Jesus' invitation, Father, Father. And the invitation for us from Jesus himself was this, do you have my view, my understanding of what it means to call God Dad? Do you hold the same view that I have when I call out to my dad? Because if you do not have a true and right understanding of that word father, everything else in the prayer will not make sense. And the invitation was not, okay, this is how I want you to see God in heaven. He says, no, no, no. This is my statement of faith. This is what I believe about my dad. So last week, we saw what he believed about his dad, why he was able, right before the cross, to say, I don't want to die, but your will be done. I trust you with my life. And he endures the cross. We see how he views his dad, and he invites us to see his dad that same way, which is why I want to encourage you, please, Make sure you could hear last week's sermon and see how Jesus describes his dad. But in describing God as dad, he is inviting us in this prayer to approach our dad as children. I want you to see that. This prayer is a prayer of one who is utterly dependent on his dad. There is an abandonment a child makes when they approach their father. An understanding that with all that I've been able to accomplish, the fact that I found myself all the way in New York City and all that I've been able to accomplish, Dad, I'm your kid. I cannot do this without you. The invitation from the Son of God himself is to recognize, for us to declare dad, is for us to see in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. We are children at the mercy of our dad, which is why, hear me, having a wonky view of your dad messes it up. If your view of your dad is one that is irritated, that you ask the same question over and over and over, that you make the same mistake over and over and over, one that is begrudgingly approaching you because that's just what he has to do, a curmudgeon in the sky ready to whack you with a two-by-four every time you cause a blunder. If that's our broken theology of our dad, then we will not approach him as children running to him, trusting that in him and him alone is goodness and life and joy and peace, but we will go terrified begrudgingly saying things like, I just don't feel like praying. But if you know who he is, there is nothing that stops you from going to him. 
which is why the Apostle Paul can make such a request, pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop. At least that phrase, pray without ceasing, should strike at the heart the things that we think prayer is, where we carve out just a five-minute block or a 30-minute block in our schedule to talk to God. Now, suddenly, the invitation is not when you talk to God that is spiritual and everything else is natural, which is all the brokenness of the Enlightenment period. Separate your natural from your supernatural. Separate the secular from the spiritual, the, the sacred. There is no separation of the supernatural and the natural of the text. We are one. And all that we do is a response to our understanding of who God is. We work, we eat, we drink. Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever we do in word or in deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord. When I go on the subway, when I eat my food, when I walk down the streets of New York, I am doing it all in the name of the Lord because there is no longer a divide of sacred and secular. There is now one. And so prayer doesn't become this thing you just do on the side, but it becomes part and parcel of who we are, that when I walk, I am communing with my dad. When I'm working, I'm in communion with my dad. When someone pushes me on the subway, I'm in communion with my dad. When I sigh in disbelief and frustration, Romans 8, even the groanings of my soul are but a prayer to the ears of my God, my tears that I wet my bed what the psalmist said are a sweet fragrance to your nostrils. All that I do becomes a prayer to my God. Pray without ceasing. Don't you dare separate your relationship with God to 30 minutes a day. You are his child, whether you feel it or not. You are a kid to this dad. And so Jesus' invitation, Father, remember this is his creed. We're not invited yet. He says, I want you to see something about me. Dad, I'm yours. And he moves on. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. At this time, when Jesus is giving his creed, there was a Jewish prayer called the Kaddish. And this Jewish prayer typically followed after the rabbi would read from the Torah. And it was a doxology a praise to God. Centuries later, the Kaddish would now be recited after the loss of a loved one. But in this time, the Kaddish was a doxology, a praise to God that was attached to the reading of Scripture. And it sounded something like this. May the great name of our God be hallowed in all of his creation. And so when Jesus is actually calling out Hallowed be your name. He is pulling from a tradition of his faith. 
Now, we don't use this word hallowed, Father, hallowed be your name a lot. The word hallowed, the phrase hallowed, the word hallowed is not something we walk around describing or saying. So we've got to know where does this word come from? The old English word for hallowed, halga, comes from this Greek word hegios. Now, that might mean nothing to you, but this Greek word hegios is a word the Apostle Paul uses to describe saints. So when he says to the saints in Corinth, he uses that word hagios, to the holy ones, to the separated ones, to the ones that are set apart by God to be righteous. Now, just walk with me for a moment. The Hebrew word kadosh is this word hallowed, to be holy, where we get the kadish from May the name of our great God be hallowed in all of his creation. So the prayer gets its root word from kadosh, the holy righteousness of God. And so when Jesus himself describes hallowed be your name, he is pulling from set apart, holy, perfect is your name. To be associated with God Hagios, saint, is to know that now to be associated with this holy, righteous, perfect God is to make you holy and righteous and set apart. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus' request from us? The Lord's Prayer, remember, is when we pray, Jesus saying, this is my creed, And my creed is establishing not only what I believe about my God, my dad, but what he is asking of me in the prayer. And so the way Jesus phrases, hallowed be your name, this is what he's actually establishing. Father, glorify, set apart, your name through me. Hollow your own name through me. An invitation from God to use us to hallow his name. An invitation from God, the Father of lights, to ask us as his children that when we approach him, it is a prayer. God, through my life, may your name be glorified. May your name be set apart. Now, this is the invitation of us being joining God in the prayer of, of uh, in, in the Lord's Prayer. It's not just Father, I'm your child. But now I step into this prayer, and as your child, this is what I am asking. Hallow your name through my life. An invitation from God for us to be invited in seeing that may your name, your great name, be hallowed in all of creation. Lord, through my life, may your great name 
be made set apart, be made holy in all of creation. What does that mean? I'll tell you what that means. There is an invitation from our dad as his children. An invitation to show creation who he is through our lives. If you don't believe me, when you get home, read Romans 1, verse 18 to 32. An invitation from our God in what we say, in what we do, in how we live, in how we move. That God's name would be holy in our lives. We, we, Exodus 20, 10 commandments, don't use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And for as long as I was alive, I always thought that meant don't curse and put God's name in the curse, right? So typically it was don't say God blank because you cannot take the name of the Lord in vain. And yet the problem with that understanding of God is we assume we take God's name in vain when we cuss. And there is not a single Jew out there who looks at the Ten Commandments and says what that actually means is you just don't cuss using God's name. You know what they would say? To take the name of the Lord in vain is to live a life contrary to the image you bear, the image of your God. To walk in a way that does not reflect who he is to speak in a way that does not reflect his glory and his majesty. Because when you don't, you are sullying a hallowed name. And so when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, it is an invitation for us as his creation to begin to live out the personhood of the one we worship the way we speak, which is why the fruit of the Spirit, a life filled with God's Spirit, Galatians 5, is what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. It is markers for the world to see this is a life transformed by Jesus. And for the world to know the one we worship It is through our speech and our deed they are waiting for. Hallowed be your name. The question God is inviting us and asking is this. If you know him as dad, have you submitted and surrendered to this God so that through you he may live out his nature, his Hallowed be your name is a call to surrender. May you live holy through me. Your kingdom come. Verse three, give us each day our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. That word daily, epiousian. Epi means on, usios means the essence, 
what is essential. And so the exact translation would sound, give us what we need. Give us what is essential for survival. Dad, you know what I need. Provide for me what I need. Listen, it is in this prayer, at the heart of this prayer, is a child asking his dad, Dad, this is what I need. And right after the prayer, he gives us this picture of a friend knocking on the door of his friend saying, I need you to lend me three loaves. And look at verse eight. I tell you, though the friend will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his, circle this word, impudence, impudence. The NIV uses this translation audacity because of his persistence because of his audacity the friend responds and then he goes how much more will your dad in this prayer this is what Jesus invites us to when you know your dad You know his heart for you. Are you audacious? Will you become impudent in your prayer? Are you trusting him enough to go to him and say, Dad, this is what I need. I need you to respond. Now, of course, Jason in his workshop so there's the opposite of adulterous, uh, opposite of audacious prayers, adulterous prayers. And if I were to define adulterous prayers, they're prayers where really what you want is for God to give you your real God, right? Adulterous prayers are prayers where you're going to God to actually give you the God that you really worship. And that's not audacious prayers. Audacious prayers are not going to God so that you can get the true God your soul wants, but audacious prayers are going to your dad and saying, listen, I trust you. I need you to show up for me. And this is what I am bringing to you to do for me. What would audaciously praying for ourselves look like in the presence of a dad that is good? What would audacious prayers look like? What would it look like for you to walk through the streets of New York and to talk to your dad knowing if a friend was able to respond to a friend who he was irritated by because he was persistent, how much more will your dad who created you in his image, who knitted you in his mother's room, Psalm 139, how much more will your God in heaven respond to you and not just give you daily bread, but give you the Holy Spirit himself to those who ask. For us to press into heaven, to press into heaven, I find myself every day 
walking around the campus of Columbia University, an institution where right over the main library are written the words, chartered by King George, dot, 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 an institution established for the glory of God. And so God has entrusted me with 7,000 students. And so I find myself walking around that campus every day saying, God, if you ask me to be audacious, so will it be. I want nothing less than all 7,000 for your kingdom and for your fame. What would it look like for you to pray audaciously for your children, for your family, for your career, to pray audaciously God, what I need, what you know is essential for me. Dad, I come to you. What would it look like for us to pray audaciously for the struggles of our soul, for God to come through and deliver us? To believe him. Give us this day our daily bread, verse four, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The word forgive there in the Greek literally means to release, to let go, which means to forgive if you care for the definition. It is letting go, it is releasing resentment or the right to exact revenge. It means we are choosing to let go of our right for vengeance and retribution, our right to hate the one who has hurt us. Forgiveness is a letting go. Now, I want you to hear me. It does not mean there aren't consequences to what has happened. Forgiveness does not mean you forget what has happened, and it does not mean in the Greek reconciliation. It doesn't mean the relationship is restored. But what it does mean is I no longer hold on to the bitterness or the guilt of what was wrong, of me wronging or me being wronged. I do not hold on to it any longer. Now, I could tell you the NIH did a study that gave research that anger, hostility, and unforgiveness lead to stress, poor mental health, and coronary disease. Go figure but I won't talk to you about that study. Instead, I'll invite you to what Jesus is actually inviting us into. His invitation is this. He uses that word debt for a reason. For everyone who is indebted to us. I remember when my wife and I, Sophia was one and a half, and we were visiting uh, Dubai. And uh, uh, we decided to uh, go into a shop of some sorts with a fine crystal. Um, and, and our daughter, you know, leave it to me to, uh, to be a good father and husband. Uh, I gave, she was three, she was three years old. Um, I gave my wife all my luggage and uh, and our daughter, and I started walking around, 
And my wife was juggling Sophia, who wanted to touch everything with, you know, all of our passport because we were on our way uh, to the airport. And in the middle of all that, all I heard was, crash! And Sophia had knocked over some crystal something. Who knows what it was? I was hoping that the Middle Eastern culture would not be that of uh, American, you broke it, you pay for it. <laughs> but, uh, but who knew? They love American values too. Um, I remember having to pay for the thing, which I still have shattered, um, that I didn't want. We broke it, and us breaking it created a debt that I owed. And every time we're wronged, there is an indebtedness that is created, a deep debt, a deep debt. And the language of Jesus saying, for those we are indebted to, he's speaking to an agrarian culture where if you owed, the only way to pay back was to give up family wealth and land, to lose rights in order to pay your debt. And what Jesus says is there are people who have wronged us that need to pay so much for the way they have wronged us. But he said forgiveness is to be able to let go of what they have done. Again, hear me. It's not to forget. It does not force reconciliation. That relationship might or might not be restored. It does not take away the consequences of what they've done. But it does not hold on to my heart any longer. I want you to picture what he's actually inviting us to. Imagine you carrying your book bag and it being stuffed with rocks, just heavy boulders. And you zip up that book bag and you strap it to your chest and you walk around your day. It's only a matter of time before those boulders tire you, exhaust you, make you out of breath. And Jesus says, when you begin to forgive, you are dropping the bag of boulders that have gripped your chest. The anger, the bitterness that have robbed you and I of our joy and we drop it and we can breathe easy again. Jesus' invitation to forgiveness is that. If you get time, read Ephesians chapter four and see his invitation to what forgiveness can look like. But, hear me, the only reason he says, forgive those who, who are indebted to you, forgive those, is because at the start of the phrase is a forgive us. And I want you to hear me, church. That's the gospel. Jesus does not blindly say forgive others. He says that the heart of the creed of a Christian is to know that before we could dare forgive anyone else, we all stand forgiven in God. Take that backpack, throw it to your back now. That's the guilt we carry in the presence of God. The bitterness that others do to us, 
When we wrong God, we owe a debt to him, and so we should flip it over and put the backpack on our back and walk around with that boulder, the guilt and the shame of how we have wronged God. But this is the heart of the gospel, that before we can forgive others, we stand in truth that God has forgiven us. That the guilt and the shame is forgiven. That in the cross, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe, and I owed a debt I could not pay. And in the cross, I am forgiven. I want you to hear me. One more thought. The reason why Jesus puts the phrase forgive us as we forgive those who are indebted to us is because Jesus wants you and I to see we will never be as wronged. We will never be wronged by anyone in our life as much as we have wronged God. We will never wrong and never be wronged by anyone else as much as we have wronged God. And without batting an eye, he took the cross for us. Now, I'm fully aware that some of us have experienced great trauma and pain, and the pathway to forgiveness is long. But the invitation from Jesus is this, it's possible. It's possible because at the heart of the gospel, I have done it for you. Your cosmic indebtedness, an eternity without me, wiped clean forgiven, accepted, and adopted. Finally, and lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Ooh, let's do this in two minutes. Jesus, in making that statement, is saying this. Remember, this is his creed. Sin is real. Sin is real. Evil is real. And we must not deceive ourselves. I want you to hear me. Hear it from one of your pastors. Sin is tricky. It's very tricky. When we hear the word deliver us from temptation, of course it's dealing with the obvious sins, right? It's dealing with the sins that we all can point out and claim, right? You know, the obvious sin, adultery. No one, no one wakes up going, oh, wait, you're not my wife. Like, that doesn't happen. That's obvious. That's sin, right? There are obvious sins the Bible takes the time to list for us. So when we say, God, deliver us from temptation, the call is deliver us from obvious sins that are out there. So drunkenness and lies and porn and adultery. Deliver us from what is obvious, God. But oh, I pray that you hear my heart. That there is far more that is not obvious to us. That when we pray, deliver us, lead us not into temptation. It is a prayer that God, there is so much that I do not see that I need your help. This Sunday is the last Sunday before my family and I take a break for a sabbatical. 
Many of you would have gotten the email. And I can tell you from my own heart that us engaging in the sabbatical, we're not leaving the city. I still have a job um, where I have to go to every day. But us walking into sabbatical is not because of what is obvious, but because what was not obvious. Because of where in my heart I did not see where God was calling me to come back to him. Because sin is tricky. If you ask me, a sabbatical typically means to take rest. And if you know anything about me, I get on four hours to five hours of sleep a night and I feel wired in the morning. I am awake. And as long as I've been alive, that's as, as many hours as I think I've ever gotten. It's, it's just, so it's, sabbatical is not I am exhausted. Because if you tell me Sabbath is necessary, I would say obviously Sabbath is necessary. But if you ask me, how have I been as a father, as a husband? That's when the unobvious sins come in, isn't it? My friend sent me this article by a man named Paul Tripp. Can I read you a bit of it? Would you permit me? I'm two minutes past my time, but. Though the power of sin has been broken, the presence of sin remains. So it's vital that we remember the deceitfulness of sin. We tend to want to believe that we hold an accurate and reliable view of ourselves. But on this side of glorification, that is not always true. Precisely because sin lives in a costume. I have often been struck with the reality that the man sitting in front of me lacks an accurate knowledge of himself. You cannot grieve what you don't see, and you can't confess what you haven't grieved, and you can't repent of what you haven't confessed. Evil doesn't always look evil, and sin often looks so good. This is part of what makes it so bad. In order for sin to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. An impatient moment of yelling wears the costume of zeal for truth. Lust masquerades as a love for beauty. Gossip lives in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as being a peacemaker or having a servant's heart. Pride is always being right. Masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. You'll never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that a significant part of the DNA of sin is deception. Lead us not into temptation. We deceive ourselves 
if we actually believe that the power of sin is in trying to pull us down every day of our lives. And you might not be struggling with adultery or porn or drunkenness, debauchery. But the way sin works is it masquerades around. It gets you to believe that the little and the innocent is not all that bad. When in fact what it desires is to pull you down and keep you in its grip. And when you say, lead us not into temptation, it is a humbling prayer to say, God, in me and my flesh, there is no good thing. And apart from you, I cannot do this. It is a prayer that it is only by your grace I am saved. And it is only by your grace I can stand. Give me more of your grace. And it is your pastor sharing his heart with you that it was not my ability to not sit and rest where sin tricked me. But it was me believing that the best way to provide for my family was to be absent was to work, was to give more and more. And can I ask you this morning, what lies have we believed where we have glorified thinking this is righteous and good? Lead us not into temptation. The prayer begins with that. Someone that we could trust. Someone that we can surrender to. And that's the invitation gallery. 2022, I pray, will be a year. Will be the year where we will boldly remind our own hearts of our status with God. He is dad. And I can go to him 30 minutes in the morning and every minute that follows. I can go to him. I can go to him with audacious requests. I could go to him and ask for his spirit to lead me not into temptation. I can go to him so I can be washed again with his forgiveness so that I can forgive others and drop these bags of boulders I am unnecessarily carrying that I can go to him and say, let your name be hallowed, made holy in my word, in my deed, in my thoughts. Dad, I come to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Lord, I pray that you would in kindness expose to us the areas of our heart that we have not allowed you to work. 
Revere, held back. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Dad, we want to know you. Fill us with your joy, your gospel peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You are listening to the podcast of the Gallery Church. Our desire is to display the goodness of God's grace and love to New York City. For more information about our church, please visit us on the web at gallerychurch.com.